Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, Katie O'Mahony, the liaison director for lacrosse on the Big C Society Board of Directors, and our special guest today, Brittany Lawrence, whose maiden name is Brittany Anger, a former attacker for Cal lacrosse, and more recently, a partner at Barclay Damon, a full-service law firm in the Northeastern United States. For the benefit of our listeners, Brittany, I'm going to start with a little background on you. Brittany attended high school in Syracuse, New York, where she was a standout lacrosse player, making first-team All-League four straight years, while also competing in varsity basketball, soccer, and tennis, and I don't know how you found the time to do all that. From there, she came to Cal and was her team's top-scoring freshman as an attacker, graduating in 2008 with her degree in American Studies with a focus in Organizational Studies. Now, Katie, is there anything you want to say about Britt so we can make her blush today? (laughs) <laughs> well, you said her her maiden name is Anger, right? And Danger yeah. Anger is an applicable nickname because she was seriously dangerous on the field. So she's a, she's a force of nature to be dealt with, that's for sure. <laughs> Brent, what do you have to say to that? Welcome to the show. We're happy to have you here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I want to start at the beginning, right after you graduated from Cal, you decided to go to law school, which ended up being at Syracuse Law. And from what I've learned, the LSAT scores, you know, your grades at Cal are really consequential for getting into law school. Can you tell us the story of how you decided you wanted to pursue a career in law and the journey that you took from Cal to Syracuse Law? And for the benefit of our listeners who might be preparing for the LSAT, do you have any study hacks that worked well for you in that process? Yeah. So, you know, I did not, you know, grow up thinking I was going to be a lawyer. Um, To be honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, But I ultimately decided and felt that a law degree was very versatile. Um, And it was after my sophomore year at Cal, I was going back to Syracuse to do an internship with UBS Financial. And, you know, there's only six or eight weeks in the summer that you can, you know, do the internship. And my start date kept getting pushed back. And, you know, they were telling me that, you know, well, uh, legal is, you know, getting back to us, you know, everything's being held up in legal right now. And, you know, it was at that moment that I realized, you know, here I was going to do an internship with a wealth management firm and the legal team was, um, you know, really driving the show. So 
um, you know, I realized that, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll think about a career in law. And I think, um, you know, it's very versatile or I thought about that at the time. Um, and that's what really made me decide to pursue law school. Um, in terms of the LSAT and, you know, advice that I would have, um, I think number one, take a course, um, and then just continue to practice, you know, the, the questions, um, you know, they're, they're repetitive. So once you get the hang of, you know, doing, doing those types of questions, um, it gets easier. I'm also kind of curious, you know, um, why Syracuse, you know, obviously that's your hometown. So there's like that hometown connection there, but what were you looking for in a law in a law school when you were applying? Cause from what I've heard, that's a very important part of a lawyer's early career. Yeah. So I was, I was sort of set on, once I decided I wanted to go to law school, I was set on Syracuse. Um, I grew up in Syracuse. I've been a big Syracuse uh, fan and I wanted to move home. Um, I'd been away for four years on the West coast and you know, that's, I kind of, um, put my mind to it and that's where I wanted to go. That's great. And then I wanted to talk a little bit more about like the daily experience of law school. Can you paint a picture for us of just what that day to day was like? For example, your schedule, the topics you studied, thinking frameworks you learned, you know, reading load, the competitive competitiveness. Can you paint that picture for our listeners? Sure. So, you know, it's interesting because I actually felt like I had a lot of free time, which is going to sound, you know, crazy. Um, but <laughs> You know, I had been at Cal as a student athlete and, you know, was trying to manage being an athlete as well as, you know, being a student. And then when I got to law school, I was only, you know, quote unquote, focused on, you know, the courses. Um, and so during your first year, you know, all the classes that you take, or at least it wasn't my experience at Syracuse, you know, they're mandatory. They're the, the basic, you know, first year law courses. So we're talking contracts, civil procedure, torts constitutional law. Um, so, you know, that w the courses are really, you know, set for you in your first year. Um, and then it is a very competitive environment. There's no question. Um, you know, everyone is trying to, you know, buy for the limited number of A's in a class because there is the curved grading system. Um, so it is very competitive, but, um, in my experience, I felt like, you know, I actually had a decent amount of time and could actually focus on, you know, schoolwork exclusively. I have a related question. It's funny you say that my, uh, my roommate in college, Kevin Lippert, he was a Cal football player as well. Uh, he, he went to Michigan and whenever people got their grades, he talked about the whaling wall. They would go and check you know, their position. Yeah. Yeah, this, these are people who probably all, always got A's in college. And then they were subjected to that force curve. And it was it was pretty traumatic for some people. Uh, another thing, you know, I remember him saying is um, I'm just interested. I, I, he told me it's sort of impossible to read everything that your your instructors assign during law school. And I was just wondering if you might opine on why, you know, why your professor, what skill might they have been trying to teach in torturing you that way? And was that, the, is that actually the case in Syracuse? That's funny. You know, um, I'm not, I'm not sure if it was impossible. Um, the competitive side of me wants to say, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was impossible. I could have done it, but, um, you know, I don't think I did read everything um, that had been assigned. You quickly learn, you know, which professors are Socratic and, you know, will 
um, you know, really question students. Um, and for those professors and for those classes, you do all of the reading. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, you, you quickly learn um, who those professors are. Um, but you know, I'm sure I'm sure it's a test, you know, for, you know, what it's going to be like as a lawyer um, when you feel like you have, you know, more than you can manage. Um, so to the extent that professors do, you know, assign way more reading material than is practical to do, I think it, it probably is, you know, just a way to prepare the students for life after law school. Like maybe maybe like separating the wheat from the chaff kind of thing, like, you know. <laughs> getting right to the heart of it, like paying attention to the most important things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, you use the word Socratic too. And I think there's some of our listeners who might not know what that is and that Socratic method that some professors use in law school. Can you talk about um, classes like that where professors did use that? You know, what was that d dynamic like? You know, how did you survive that kind of professor? Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a style of teaching where, um, you know, the professor will just ask, um, you know, cold call on students and ask questions about the material. Um, and at first, you know, it's it can be very intimidating, um, but then, you know, it's just sort of what to expect. I remember I had one professor. Um, she was my torts professor. Um, and first class, uh, first semester of law school, Everyone is seated, you know, the class is right as it's beginning, the professor walks in and she had every single student's name memorized. And as she was walking down the stairs, you know, to the front of the room to, you know, put her books down and begin class, she, as she's walking down the stairs, she's immediately, you know, calling on people by their first and last name. Um, so that was uh shocking. And, you know, everyone quickly learned, speaking of doing the reading, you quickly learned that you were going to have the reading done for that particular class. That's funny. And, you know, you also talked about the competitiveness in law school and you know, it's, it's difficult to generalize. So give me a little latitude here. Um, but it's my understanding, you know, like you said, that law school is just filled with intellectual overachievers. You know, it's that really competitive environment. Everybody's doing well. And I think that there's some parallels to that highly competitive environment um, on and off the field that our student athlete listeners experience at Cal. Do you agree with that parallel parallel there? And then what are some of the things that you did to stand out? I know you talked about time management, um, but how did you distinguish yourself in that really competitive environment? Yeah, so I do think there are similarities, um, but, you know, it's, it's also different in a way. And I think, feel like, you know, they're being a student athlete and um, the law school environment, both, you know, competitive environments. But from my experience at Cal, you know, everyone, you know, all of my teammates, we were all competitive, but we also had, um, you know, we were part of a team and we were working mm -hmm. together as a team. Whereas in law school, I feel like in my experience that, you know, everyone is really, um, you know, focused on their own personal success. Um, so that was something that was a little bit of an adjustment for me because, you know, I have such a, you know, team mentality. Um, so then to just all of a sudden be really focused on, you know, individual success, um, you know, that took some adjusting. Um, but yeah, I think time management was, you know, critical for me. Um, you know, I always um, I kind of pride myself um, or I did at the time, I should say, 
on the fact that I never was forced to pull an all-nighter during law school. And I saw a lot of people do that. Um, now, you know, I've, I've done that as a practicing attorney, which, you know, is a different story. But during law school, you know, and I felt that was because of my ability to manage, you know, my time. And I was always, you know, preparing well in advance. Um, so I didn't have to be up cramming for a test, um, you know, the night before. Were there also any like extra skills that you had to learn in law school? Like, what are those things that our listeners who are currently in law school or should consider, you know, before they developing uh, or before they're going to apply for jobs, those skills that they should adult develop, like maybe like accounting know how or some of these complementary skills that can be viewed as accredited? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, um, I think the willingness to challenge yourself, you know, at a very, from the very beginning is really critical. Um, and I think about, you know, like taking, you know, the bar exam, right. You're going to ultimately have to take that big test and you're ultimately going to have to, you know, know how to, you know, study for that and, and, you know, ultimately hopefully pass it. Um, but I think challenging yourself early on to, you know, do the work, understand, read, read the material, prepare good outlines, um, you know, doing that early on and challenging yourself rather than, you know, waiting until you have no choice, um, would be, you know, sort of my advice, um, you know, for, for law students. And also you were a part of law review at Syracuse, right? That's right, Rob. Yes. And then, so for a little background of our listeners who aren't familiar with the ins and outs of law school, Law Review is a student-run scholarly journal that publishes comments on and uh, articles by law professors, judges, and other legal professionals. I've read that it's quite prestigious because it involves this meticulous legal research and writing. And my understanding is that a good percentage of its members eventually become litigators, which perhaps not coincidentally is your practice area. What was your experience in law review? Um, and was it that experience that drove you towards litigation or was that interest in litigation something that you discovered later in your career? Yeah, so my interest in litigation, I discovered later in my career. Um, I, I was interested in being a part of law review because, well, number one, a lot of employers um, consider that when they're making hiring decisions, um, you know, typically the top of the class are, you know, the top students um, are those who are part of law review and the top writers. Um, but I thought, you know, law review was very valuable. I learned, you know, very quickly the importance of precision with legal writing. Um, and, you know, as a litigator, I write all the time. It's a big portion or a big part of my practice. So, you know, it was very valuable to me, you know, now looking back. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm excited to see, you know, how later on this road, how you really find litigation is something you want um, to pursue. But for some people, so some people clerk for judges as a first step in their career. And it was my understanding that you were an intern for a judge or maybe even a couple of judges. Um, forgive my ignorance, but why do young lawyers choose to clerk or intern for judges as opposed to just joining a firm straight away? Yeah, so I think, you know, they they do it really for, um, you know, the experience of working with the judge, um, understanding, you know, um, how a judge is going to, you know, approach a case, um, 
there's a level of, um, you know, prestige with learning, um, you know, how to be an excellent writer. Um, and, you know, that's something that's emphasized um, through a clerkship. Mm-hmm. Can you describe to me kind of like what the activities are of being a clerk, you know, really specifically and like the daily schedule um, that's involved with something like that, you know, work product you're responsible for. Can you opine on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, I was never, you know, a clerk other than doing the summer, you know, clerkship, mm-hmm. but the judges have, you know, term law clerks who do, um, you know, a lot of their, and it, it, I think it depends on the judge actually, you know, but my understanding and my impression is that, you know, the law clerks are doing a lot of the legal research, a lot of the writing, um, working with the judge to analyze the cases um, and really just, you know, helping the judge, um, you know, Mm -hmm. in delivering the decisions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then fast forwarding a little bit, you join Barclay Damon. And for the benefit of our student athletes who are trying to determine uh, what a substance of lawyering within a firm actually is and whether it sounds appealing, can you describe the day-to-day work that you did as an associate? For example, the percentage of time you spent reading as compared to drafting and how much time you spent in the courtroom versus the office and client interactions, so forth. And then contrast that associate's workday with the workday that you execute as a partner, please. Yeah. So early on, you know, as a litigation associate, I was doing a lot of legal research, you know, so you're given a particular issue and, you know, asked to prepare a research memo, um, you know, written memo. And, um, you know, eventually, and as you know, you get more experience, you know, you will start doing more of the brief writing and, and building in those little individual research assignments into more, um, you know, complete briefs. Um, but early on, it's a lot of, or it was for me, a lot of, you know, research um, and, and smaller scale writing assignments. And, um, you know, our firm or my firm um, has this great program, it's a shadowing program. And, um, you know, we allow associates to um, shadow client meetings, court appearances. So I was able to get a lot of experience in the courtroom or meeting with clients as, you know, a first, second, third year associate because of this shadowing program. Um, And then, you know, once you start getting into years four, five, six, you start taking on, um, you know, more of an active role on the case. And, um, you know, in litigation, I started doing more depositions, um, arguing motions. um, And then, you know, it sort of naturally evolves. And, you know, you get to the point where as a partner, you're, you know, supervising the matter and, um, you know, really handling the entire case from start to finish. Of course, there are some, you know, cases that I work on where we work as part of a team. So there are multiple lawyers, Um, but, you know, much different than, you know, as in first, second or third year when, you know, you're given sort of a narrow research issue. and, you know, asked to look at that specific issue versus have having, you know, sort of the whole picture um, and thinking about the case in total. Hey, Britt, I've got kind of like a follow on question here. When people think of litigators, if they're like, let's just say my age or older, which is to say old, er, uh, they, might be th- they might be thinking like, you know, Perry Mason and, and maybe a younger generation might think like L.A. Law. You know, how how much how much time as a litigator do you spend in the courtroom 
as opposed like on a percentage basis, like as opposed to uh, reading, researching, writing briefs, um, is it, you know, 90% writing briefs, 10% courtroom? What's that, how, how much, how often do you actually get to court? So it's probably, it depends, but I would say, you know, it's 20% in the courtroom, 80%, um, you know, behind the scenes. Um, and, and maybe it's 30%, you know, it really depends, but that's one thing that was actually surprising to me when, you know, I became a lawyer, because I think even in law school, um, you know, and prior to law school, you know, you think that, you know, as a litigation attorney or, you know, attorney in general, you know, they're always in the courtroom. That was kind of, you know, the impression that I had. And, you know, at least in my practice, um, you know, in commercial litigation, that's not the case. Um, you know, a lot of cases, you know, settle prior to trial. So there are a few trials and of course there are still, you know, motion arguments um, and hearings, but you know, that was, it was something that's surprising, was surprising to me. Um, you know, that it's just not as, as much as you would think. And, and again, though, it could be, you know, other practice areas, I think, um, you know, maybe in civil litigation cases go to trial more often, but in the commercial context, um, you know, just, it, cases don't go to trial as often as you would think. So, I mean, from what you just described, it sounds like writing, you know, persuasive, organized, clear, you know, briefs that essentially are, would, would let's just say be the, the mirror of somebody making a clear organized oral argument in court happens actually more often than actually doing that court work. Is that fair to say, or? You know, I, I would say it's a ton of writing. Yes. And even, you know, even if you ultimately are in court, you know, there it, you start with all the briefing. Right. And even if you get to trial, you know, you, you brief the court on, you know, all of the issues in advance of trial. So there is a tremendous amount of writing involved. What, what do you think um, separates a great lawyer from an average lawyer? And and if if possible, like, could you opine on the, that question, both from the perspective of the firm and also the perspective of your client? Yeah. Interesting. So I guess, you know, in my opinion, I think it's, I think a great lawyer, you know, really tries to connect with their clients. Um, you know, we're not just, you know, I'm not just a lawyer, I'm counsel as well. Um, and, you know, for me personally, I have, you know, uh, I feel personally invested in the cases. And I think, um, you know, great lawyers really, really care about the outcome of the case and getting the results that is going to satisfy the client. Um, you know, I know I am constantly thinking about my cases and my clients. I feel like, you know, if I'm out for a run or in the grocery store, um, you know, I'm constantly thinking about the case and the strategy and, you know, is there anything else, you know, we could be doing or is this the right approach? You know, I'm constantly asking those questions. Um, and, you know, that's in my opinion, that's what I think makes a great lawyer. Hmm. So I have a related question. Like now that you've made partner and I think congratulations are in order here because that was that yeah, fairly recent. <laughs> yes. Just this past January. So thank you. <laughs> nice. Uh, can, can you explain like how long it took and what the journey looked like and why it's such a big deal when, when you in fact do make partner? Yeah. So, you know, 
it's I think it's such a big deal because in the law firm environment, you know, that's like the one promotion. Right. Um, you know, making partner. Um, it took me eight years, um, you know, and I think. In fact, I know it took a lot of hard work, um, a lot of late nights, um, a lot of weekend work. Um, you know, that's really what it came down to, in my opinion. Um, I was unwilling to give up. And, you know, I set a goal uh, when I started at the firm. I made it very clear that I wanted to be a partner um, and I was determined to achieve that goal. For the benefit of our li- listeners who are associate attorneys currently, as a partner in your firm now, what do you look for in new associates? Can you share any insights about the standards of performance that they should endeavor to deliver or secret tests that they'll need to pass um, in order to earn the trust of their firm's partners? Yeah, so I think... Um you know, I always appreciate when someone is just a really hard worker because, you know, when you first start in a law firm, you're trying to learn how to practice. And, you know, it's not expected that a new associate is going to know everything, you know, and and you're going to make mistakes. But um, if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to help the partner um, meet the deadline and do whatever it takes to meet that deadline and be right there, you know, up until you know, the brief is submitted or up until, you know, whatever the deadline is, you know, is met. Um, That I think is so important. Um, And then, you know, something else that I always thought about when I was an associate and I would, uh, I think it's a good thing to think about, um, you know, try to have, um, you know, a really good handle on the facts of a particular case. Because, you know, you're not going to be the one with the most, you know, experience on strategy, Um, You know, but if you can understand and become a master of the facts of a particular case, you're going to be invaluable to the partner and the team that you're working with. Um, And that's something that I always thought about. And, you know, I found it to be, you know, um, it proved to be helpful. um, And and that would be my advice to, you know, associates. How about like the current Cal student athlete right now looking to become an associate at a firm? Are there like particular things that you think really stand out on a resume or things that they bring up in an interview that's that's going to be make you more interested in bringing them into the firm? Well, I know, of course, I love, you know, the athletic background. Um, That's something that, you know, um, says a lot to me. Um, But I think, um, you know, do you mean in terms of, you know, like coursework at current Cal students? Sure. Yeah. That, that, and even like things in an interview, you know, like things, points that they should focus on stuff like that. Got it. Got it. So I think, you know, in an interview, I think relying on, you know, their experience as a student athlete and some of the characteristics that have made them successful as an athlete, I think, you know, those are really important, you know, um, the hard work, the determination, um, all of those things, you know, really anything that they feel like has been, um, you know, helpful in their success as a student athlete, I think are great things to, you know, raise in an interview and talk about and highlight because that's something, you know, that can set them apart from, you know, other candidates. 
is speaking of hard work, I have also heard that working at a big law firm can be very demanding. And during closing and other transactions, I've heard anecdotes like investment bankers go to bed at 2 a.m. and lawyers just don't go to bed at all. Uh, from your experience, can you describe what your lifestyle has been like working at a large firm? And do you have any systems or hacks that you use in order to maintain wellness and balance, manage stress and so forth, given the demands of work? Yeah, so it is definitely demanding. There's no question. Like I had mentioned, um, a lot of late nights and weekend work. There's no question. Um, you know, I never imagined um, working as much as I do now, which is, um, you know, sort of crazy to think about. Um, but then I think everyone needs to just, you know, find what works for them in terms of stress relief. For me, that is breaking a sweat, going for a run, um, you know, doing lifting, doing whatever workout that I'm going to, you know, break a sweat and be able to clear my mind. And, um, you know, you just, you always feel better, or at least I do, um, you know, after being able to just, you know, exercise a little bit. So that would be, um, you know, my advice, but I think it's, I think it's different for everyone. You know, I mean, my husband, you know, watches every Knicks game and that's how he, um, you know, he's an attorney as well. And that's how he sort of, um, you know, manages his stress and relief. And that's his, that's his way. So everyone, everyone has their own way. Yeah. My, it's funny. My wife, uh, Julie, who is a soccer player also like you, if, if she doesn't work out, uh, it, like her, everything starts to fall apart. She gets anxious and tense. So that's a, that's a real release. Interesting to yeah, exercise is a savior. I yeah. anytime I'm stressed out, so I totally agree with you, Britt. It's got to be a go-to for me. So I, you know, Britt, I've heard too that uh, you know litigation where you have this binary, you know, we win or we lose kind of outcome. It, the preparing for litigation is particularly intense with some lawyers like leaving their families for like weeks or months, you know, to prepare with a group. And is, is that accurate? Is that how, how do you prepare for court? Yeah. So thankfully I've not had to be away from my family for weeks or months, but I definitely have been, um, you know, preparing. There's no question that preparing takes um, a lot of additional time. And so, you know, just last February, um, I was preparing for a trial and it was a week long trial and, um, you know, I would come home every night, but I was spending, you know, 14 hours a day, you know, at the office. Um, and in terms of, you know, what I do to prepare, I, you know, some people would probably say that I over-prepare, but I think it is so important because number one, it's something, you know, that I can control, which, you know, a lot of times, you know, things are out of your control. Um, but that's something, you know, you can control. And it also gives me confidence to go in really, really well prepared. Um, so, you know, I, I prepare witness outlines. I prepare, you know, argument outlines. Um, I try to have everything that I think can think of, you know, going in um, well prepared. Exhibits lined up, you know, and try to do as much as I can beforehand, um, because I think that that is what ultimately is going to set me up for, you know, the most successful scenario for the outcome. You know, Britt, I'm curious. Since you've started practicing law, what surprised you most about? the practice of law compared to what you thought it would be when you graduated from law school? Yeah. So, 
You know, I mentioned this earlier, but I really think it is how few cases in the commercial litigation context actually go to trial. Um, you know, that was surprising to me. You know, I had this impression that, um, you know, if the case was filed, you know, of course, some cases settled, but, you know, everything goes to trial and there's a lot of, um, you know, trials going on um, and maybe in some practice areas. But, you know, in my experience, there just haven't been as many cases go to trial that I would have anticipated. And did you ever consider working in-house at a corporation? In addition, can you contrast for our listener what it's like working in-house compared to at a law firm? Like, what are the differences in duties, compensation, lifestyle, and so forth? Yeah, so I never considered working in-house. I work with a lot of in-house lawyers. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly, you know, what the differences would be, but I can imagine that, you know, for one, there's no billable hour requirement, right? So they're not as focused on the billable hour. Um, the other thing too, that I think is a difference is, you know, in commercial litigation and the clients that I represent, you know, I'm, I'm constantly learning about different businesses, different industries, and, you know, an in-house lawyer, um, I would think, you know, is, is generally focused in, in understanding that one particular business, you know, and where they're employed. Um, so I think that those would probably be the biggest differences in my opinion. Mm. And what does your career look like going forward? What are the goals that you have and the things that you want to achieve? So I want to continue to build and expand my practice. Um, You know, it's funny, I made it my 2021 goal, actually, to try to reconnect with as many former Cal lacrosse teammates as I can to see if, you know, there's a possibility of working together. I've been so inspired by, um, you know, some of the amazing things that um, some of my former teammates are doing. Um, So I'm hoping to, you know, try to reconnect with as many um, Cal players as I can. Um, you know, and then on a personal level, um, you know, I have a two-year-old and um, a little girl named Allie and she's means the world to me. Um, and, you know, I'm going to just continue to try to achieve that work-life balance. Um, so those are, those are my goals. Um, we'll see, you know, work-life balance seems like, you know, impossible at times, but I'm going to continue to work on it. <laughs> And keep breaking uh, a sweat, right? My daughter's name is Allie, too, for the record. <laughs> yeah. we, we both have uh, little Allies running around the house. How mm. funny. I didn't know that, Joe. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> well, on that note, um, now we'd like to shift to these intangible benefits of the thousands of hours you invested on the field. Training, treating, competing, running, more running. Our audience is very interested whether the sensibilities <laughs> developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. So for that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Katie. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Um, so before I even hop into it, everything that keeps coming up, a theme here is that Britt was very organized, right? She always mm-hmm. was that person, like, was that practice not 10 minutes early, but 20 minutes early. She was a person who knew all the plays inside out and backwards. She was that person. If you had a question you could go to, and she knew the answer to it. And if she didn't, she was going to figure it out. And I don't know if it's like the East coast lacrosse mentality versus the West coast lacrosse mentality. Um, but growing up in San Francisco, I had, you know, 
I played the cross, but like they grew up playing the cross and I was always so intimidated, but no matter what, I knew I could go to Brett and she would be willing to help me, but then she'd also kick my rear end on the field. <laughs> so <laughs> that's everything that kind of, she's discussed with her professional career. Like it was so present back in the day when we were playing together at Cal. So I'm glad to see you put it to good use and you're killing it in the, in the law field, um, Brit. Um, but on a fun note, I don't know if Brittany knows this. I got really sick my freshman year and was defender and ended up playing attack my sophomore year on. And Britt was one of those people I looked up to all the time, no matter what. Brittany was that person. So I don't know if you knew that or not, but your leadership on the attacking end of the field was just like my standard. I wanted to be as tenacious as you. I wanted to be as organized as you. And I definitely wasn't, but you know, so thank you for all of that. Um, Going back a little bit, what do you think got you to be in the type of law that you're practicing now? You know, cause there's so many different various so, fields. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, my internships helped, you know, during law school when I worked for the federal district court judge and the U S attorney's offices, um, that helped. Um, but I really fell into the position, you know, the opportunity presented itself and, um, you know, I started working with people who I really liked and, you know, they became mentors to me. Um, and you know, I enjoyed the work. And so, you know, I just said, this is it, you know, this is what I want to do and I'm gonna, um, you know, continue doing it. So, um, you know, it just kind of, you know, fell into place for me, which is, you know, um, not everyone can say that. I realize that. Um, but you never know, you know, what happens. And, you know, for me, the opportunity presented itself and I just went with it. That's awesome. Coming back to that teamwork thing during law school, you said that was kind of a every man for himself situation, but we played together for two years at Cal. And I feel like our team had such just like we had each other's back no matter what. And we were all competitive, like you said, but it was go bears like through and through, like we were there for one another. Do you feel like you still have that kind of mentality now currently at your current position in law firm? I do. Like I said, you know, I, I'm still working with the people who I worked with when I first started and, you know, I have so much respect for them. They have, you know, trained me, we've worked together and, you know, we, to a certain extent, yes, it's the same, same sort of, you know, team um, mentality where, you know, if, if I need something, you know, they're going to be there to help and, you know, vice versa. Um, you know, so yes. And that has been nice. And that's one reason, you know, I haven't left my firm and, you know, I love my firm. Um, you know, so it's, it's so important to me to have that, you know, be working with people that share that same team mentality. Hey, Britt, I got a question. I, I, I wanted to interject if uh, possible. Um, <clears throat> we hear a lot about the advantages embedded in the mindset of former athletes at work, you know, along with other, you know, disciplines that supposedly give people an edge in the work, work, workforce. So like there's a, uh, we always, uh, this is always a part of the conversation where people kind of give us trouble, but there's a Stanford professor, Carol <laughs> Dweck, who's really persuasively written about, um, these sorts of advantages in a book called Mindset. Uh, and so first, do you think, you know, that's true through hype that, that uh, you know, the skills you practiced as an athlete give you an edge at work? And if you do think that's truth, is there any way you could like really blacken the line for us and talk about 
superpowers, um, you know, maybe from the, your time as a lacrosse player that give you an edge as uh, in your work as a litigator? Yeah, so I do think there's truth to that. And I also think, um, you know, for me, it's been, you know, my determination and work ethic and also, um, you know, my ability and willingness to put in the preparation that's required. And, you know, I feel like that's the case with when you're a student athlete and particularly when you're an athlete, um, you know, you're willing to put in whatever it takes, you know, behind the scenes to be able to, you know, show up on the field and, um, you know, be the most prepared that you can be. And, you know, I do the same in my law practice. Um, you know, a lot of people, and I think I mentioned this, you know, some people would think that I over-prepare. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, it gives me the confidence and it's what I can control going in. Um, and, you know, that's something that I think, um, you know, I learned from being a student athlete. Got it. So, um, as you, you probably know, you know, 98% of our student athletes go pro in something other than their sport when they graduate from Cal. And then ultimately, even the like the pro athletes, um, you know, go pro in something else uh, later. And we've heard poignantly from this group that the transition of self-identity from athlete to so like the post sports you uh, is really difficult. And our student athletes have described feeling untethered. You know, deeply sort of uncertain about who they'll become, how life will unfold, uh, the first steps to take and so forth. And so we're wondering um, if the uh, how old are you right now? Uh, sorry, uh, just if 34. the 30 something year old you and it's sort of like a heavy question. Uh, 34, if the 34 year old you could give you, you know, some some career guidance or general advice to like the 22 year old you when you were just graduating, like, what would you recommend? And what would you say? And, you know, what's, what, what hits you on that question? Yeah. So I, you know, don't lose the characteristics that made you such a good and successful student athlete, you know, take those with you. So it's the hard work, the determination, the focus, take those with you because that's what's going to, it's going to propel you. It's going to set you apart and it's ultimately going to make you successful in whatever career path that you choose. Got it. Nice. Uh, no, Brittany, go ahead, Joe. Oh no, that's, that's it. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Brittany, I was just going to close off this interview by saying, thank you. Uh, we learned a lot today in terms of, you know, putting in preparation, putting in the hard work, you know, keeping those sensibilities that we learned as athlete and using them in our careers. They have certainly worked for you. Um, I know those things will be very translatable for a lot of people, and they're really going to get a lot of that out of this, too. So really, Brittany, I thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. Um, go Bears. And one other last thing too, Rob, uh, how can people reach you if they want a job? At Barclay Damon, if they're aspiring, you know, lawyers coming out of law school that, that are practicing in New York or the Northeast, like how can they get in touch with you? Sure. So, uh, you know, my bio or my email is on my bio on the Barclay Damon website. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn and all the social media sites as well. Wait, what's your handle? Do you have a like a particular handle <laughs> that you use? Like, is it Brit at or... <laughs> <laughs> so 
Brit Law 12 uh, on Instagram. Um, Super. So yes. <laughs> Perfect, Brit. Thank you so much for your time today. Go Bears. Go Bears. Go Bears. Thank you. Go Bears. That was an informational discussion on the career of a litigator from Britt Lawrence. Some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were the personal investment Britt puts in her cases as she's constantly thinking about litigation strategy and caring for her clients. The importance she places on preparation as something she can control and as something that gives her confidence, and more specifically, how she developed that skill in preparation as an athlete and how it now gives her an edge in litigation. Those are skills that have certainly aided Britt in her career and hope by using them, those skills aid you too. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal Varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Britt. I'll see you in two weeks on our next amazing episode. Thank you for listening and go Bears!